Welcome to Restart Radio. This is a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because, unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Lauren from the Restart Project, and today I'm joined by Carolina Vallejo, a designer and trustee of the Restart Project. Hi, Carolina. Hi, Lauren. And today we're going to be talking about robotic pets, um, which is significant to discussions about repair because we naturally put more time and care into maintaining things that we feel an emotional attachment to, like our pets. Um, and Japan has been a pioneer in the production of robotic pets and has produced some of the most successful models, including the Tamagotchi, which emerged in the 90s, and then Sony Aibo and Paro the Seal. Um, and we're going to be talking about how attitudes to these pets might be related to some aspects of Shinto philosophy that consider objects as possessing souls, uh, which Carolina is going to discuss a little bit based on her time in Japan. And we're also going to talk about Japan's current attitudes to e-waste. But first, we wanted to discuss some recent developments um, that are very relevant to the world of tech, which is uh, things that have emerged from the Paradise Papers. And first of all, it's been revealed that Apple has, well, we knew this already, but $252 billion of offshore cash. Um, and just to sort of put that in perspective, the UK's total foreign, foreign currency reserves are $154 billion. Um, so after its arrangement in Ireland came under scrutiny from the European Commission, um, Apple moved a firm holding much of its offshore ca cash to Jersey, which makes its own tax laws and which has a 0% corporate tax rate for foreign companies. So, I mean, this is kind of huge in terms of being very concrete evidence that Apple was shopping around for offshore tax havens. Carolina, what do you think we should... I mean, how do you think we should sort of incorporate this into our attitude to consuming more of Apple's products, if at all? <laughs> it's a difficult one. Um, uh, I've been an Apple user for many years for in my main computer, my laptop. Um, so I'm pretty locked in their products. Uh, while I'm not really supporting their corporate practices. And increasingly, I'm more and more frustrated with the rate in which I have to change my computer. So I used to have a, a laptop from 2009 that I used and worked with until last year um, because the hardware was still working, but uh, none of the software updates mm. uh, were compatible. And uh, so I was forced to update my computer. Um so it's very difficult for a designer that works on uh, on software that are that is mainly produced for the Apple platform. Yeah, yeah. To to separate yourself from this uh, hardware, but it, it is increasingly frustrating. Um, mm. I really don't have an answer of what to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that was a sort this. of impossible question that I cornered yeah. you with. <laughs> um, but. I think, yeah, sort of the wider point we're trying to make here is that there is some serious transparency issues surrounding 
the people who really hold the monopoly on you know the, the way that we consume tech today and another relevant thing that emerged is um uh, this company Glencore, which is described as the biggest company you've never heard of, and that's um, from a researcher from Global Witness, uh, but they own 28% of market share of cobalt, which is used in the production of lithium-ion batteries, so in a huge number of electronics. And it's it's scary that, first of all, that someone has that much of a hold on you know what is a really, really significant mineral and then also it's emerged that this has come about through sort of bribery on a massive scale. So that's also something to watch and be aware of. Um, we're going to move on to talking about uh, robotic pets now. But first of all, Carolina, we were discussing some of the reasons why... I mean, the idea of a, a dog that is your companion, that is also a robot, is kind of shocking to, I mean, people in the UK maybe. I don't... I think if... If someone was, you know, to sort of take their robot dog on a walk through the park, uh, you'd get quite a few funny looks. And we were saying that maybe the idea isn't so shocking in Japan, where there's more of a history of robots being sort of part of part of everyday life. Um, can you explain a bit from your experience why that might be? Or? Sure. Just uh, first, I'm not a, a cultural anthropologist yeah. or anything so I'm not an expert <laughs> on Japan uh, but I do have a relationship and I've visited uh, frequently for the last eight years um, I go there once a year for two or three months that's like the extent of my knowledge mm -hmm. um, just to clarify that I'm not an expert um, but yes I what I see it's that um, for Japanese people robots are pretty much something that they grew up with and it's something that it's normal to them um it's been part of the culture in the animes like you have astro boy you have all of these different type of robots that are friendly um since the 70s and 80s but also you see them uh, greeting you in the in the shops if you go to Uniqlo or you will be greeted by a friendly little robot telling you which floor is selling what type of goods or uh, or a department store or your hotel, um, which is quite uh, it's quite a different relationship that that you would have uh, in the West. Mm. Um, we were discussing also how for Japanese people, um, most things have a soul or have a ghost, and that doesn't exclude electronic devices. Yeah. So for for. A Japanese person, it would be very different to relate to a robotic cat or a robotic dog than it would be to a Westerner, which has like that as a completely separate entity that is impossible to have a feeling or have something extra to it. Oh. Mm. So that's interesting that that concept of um, every object having a soul, and we were talking about how that comes from Shinto philosophy, which you clarified for me is is um, something that's very, it's kind of permeated a number of aspects of Japanese culture and is, you, you were saying that even atheist people will kind of, you know, go and say a prayer in, a, in Shinto. Is yeah. That so, for example, my husband, who's Japanese, he would, uh, yeah, we, we will stop in a, in a Shinto shrine and just say a prayer uh, without 
thinking about it as something that doesn't relate to a religion, like mm-hmm. or that you are not part of that religion is something that you just do um, yeah. in a way. And uh, in terms of how that <laughs> influences attitudes to repair, um, you were also talking about this concept, uh, which well, it was a word you say when when you see unnecessary waste and it's sort of uh, like a lament. More than I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you explain what kind of context you might you might say that in? Uh, yeah, when when you're wasting things and it's a shame to waste them. So we use that word quite frequently when we waste food, for example, in my house. So if you prepare a lot of food and you had people coming over, but then a lot of that food wasn't eaten um, and you left it on the table and it kind of got spoiled... And you have to throw it away. You kind of say, not deny. <laughs> it comes with a sense of shame in a way or, or regret, like something you really wouldn't want to do, but you're doing it and you feel a bit bad for wasting it. Mm. And then there's some other things that often come up um, in discussions around repair. And another one is this idea of repair that is made to be part of the aesthetic appearance of the object, which... Um, you might know a bit about as a designer but uh, I mean it kind of comes up a lot in sort of like online blogs and um, we were talking about how Kintsunugi yeah that's the one yeah Kintsugi sorry Um, (laughs) do you think that I mean it's it's maybe kind of a it might it might be fetishized in a way that's perhaps not that productive to discussions around repair but I mean do you think that in any way we have any lessons to draw from it's like the the idea if you break yeah. a, if you break a bowl and then you repair it with gold, it will become even more beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I think it and I think and it comes also from the wabi sabi perspective. I think you have an appreciation first. You have or Japanese people have an appreciation for um, the ephemeral, so that's why like the sakura, the the cherry blossoms are such a big thing. It's something that is really beautiful and that you know you have to see it and it won't last more than two days. They will be gone. Yeah. That said, uh, we do hope that our electronic <laughs> products last longer than two days. Yeah, but what I what I meant is that you have like uh, that um, kind of appreciation for beauty, or that uh, so mm. if you have a, a ceramic jar that breaks and you can repair it with gold and make it even more beautiful, you kind of um, can underline the ugliness of it or how broken it was and make something that was ugly beautiful yeah and appreciate that imperfection right i mean and i guess another thing that's interesting is i mean we talked a bit about you were saying that that recycling and um reuse is something that's very much part of like everyday sort of practice in japan in a way that it's maybe not yet here uh and and i mean that is sort of it's it's good to hear, but at the same time, we've been looking a bit about e-waste uh, statistics in Japan. And even though they were one of the first to kind of acknowledge that it's a, a growing global issue and have some of the highest, tiger, I think, the highest targets outside the EU, uh, it's still a massive problem. And I think, um, according to this article from the BBC, of the 650,000 tonnes of home appliances and small electronics that are discarded each year, less than 100 thousand of those are actually recycled or collected for recycling so i mean it's it's maybe more a problem of kind of infrastructure but i guess 
the attitudes are already in place. So it's kind of... Yeah, pretty much. I think, uh, I mean, I, I was telling you before, you you can't walk in Tokyo and find a bean. You have to kind of carry on a bag for your waist. Mm. And then when you get home, you sort it and put it in the specific containers. Um, so, yeah, it, recycling is pretty much uh, ingrained and the attitude is there. The, the behavioral change is there. Mm. Um, and there's towns that are actually now uh, zero waste. So they will select and repair absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, sorry, not repair, uh, recycle absolutely everything. Um, with e-waste, I don't really know what's the yeah what's the cost of it not having an impact yet. I suppose they also produce quite a lot of electronics. Yeah. And there is a lot going on every day mm. uh, coming out so that might be one of the reasons they are might be producing at a rate that is unsustainable yeah i mean i guess it just kind of goes to show that even if attitudes are in place you do need adequate infrastructure as well and you do need sort of governments to you know collaborate with manufacturers and and those sort of larger scale solutions need to be there as well yeah, um, it's pretty. It's a very consumerist society too, so that might have to do with it. I mean, there might be more work to be done on the consuming part of things, the mindless consuming. You're listening to Restart Radio. Uh, I'm Lauren and I'm here with Carolina and we're talking about uh, robotic pets. Well, we haven't actually mentioned robotic. We haven't started talking about robotic (laughs) pets yet. But we finished on the note just then that um, even if attitudes to recycling are getting there, uh, it doesn't help that we still live in what is a very consumerist world. And that aspect of it needs to be addressed as well. So on that note, we're kind of talking about uh, the rise of robotic pets and whether or not that is just going to be another wave of objects that end up in the bin or whether they could actually teach us to have a sort of more, well, I guess, loving attitude, you know, loving relationship with our electronic items. And... um, my earliest experience with electronic pets was a Tamagotchi that I had when I was in primary school. Everyone had one. Uh, it's like a tiny little egg-shaped thing that you'd carry around in your pocket. Very simple, kind of, you know, tiny black and white screen. And they died all the time, and it was tragic. You had to keep feeding them. But I think, I mean, I don't know if that age, if I actually believed that it was living or, or what my attitude was to it, I think... Strangely, I probably put it in the same category as something like, um, uh, no, I wouldn't quite say it was, it was less, it seemed less animate than a goldfish, definitely. But, um, it, it was, it was a, you know, it was more than just an object, I think. Um, and then they've actually recently brought these back and the appearance of them, despite technology having progressed massively since the nineties, the appearance of them hasn't changed a bit. It's still the same tiny little black and white screen. It's got no added features, and I think it's sort of playing into this nostalgia that people have. Um, Carolina, have you seen the Tamagotchi? Does your daughter have one? <laughs> no, she doesn't. Uh, I've seen it. I also remember them from primary school. I never owned one. Mm. Um, I 
suppose there will be a Christmas hit and everyone will be the most half device and then they will be forgotten as yeah. it happened with the older models. Um, it's true that you create a different relationship with them, but I'm not sure if that is um, because they are an electronic object that you have to feed and keep alive or because of the demographic you are having. So for children, like for my daughter, her dolls or her books or her dresses or her thing, they, they have a very... They're not an object. They have a very important um, role in her life. Yeah, so, that's a good point. And I think if... I mean, if if kids were taught to sort of nourish that instead of being told that it's silly to think that you're your doll is a living creature and um i mean that could be a generation of very inspired repairers potentially <laughs> couldn't it um and so tamagotchis are being re-released but they're not the most uh advanced robotic pet on the market and another thing that's been re-released is the sony ibo which was uh, a robot dog and these were very successful in Japan. The sort of first generation of them were very successful. And it's sort of a bit of a tragic story, really, because uh, eventually they stopped being made. And then after that, the final repair centres for Sony Ibo closed. And there was one man left, apparently, according to this mini-documentary we watched, um, with, who could repair them. So this one man was sort of inundated with... Uh, requests, requests. You know, grieving parents of these Sony Ibo who um, who were on their final legs, and uh, apparently they held these sort of mass funerals for Sony Ibo that were failing. Um, can you tell me a bit more about the funerals, <laughs> you know, and what kind of spirit that was done in? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I can tell you more than what. Uh, we saw it in the in the documentary, but uh, they were, yeah, it's pe it's people really grieving for for these animals, um, or inanimated animals, if that makes any sense. Um, what I found interesting is the need for a closure mm. that you don't normally have with other electronic uh, objects. So you you do need because they have such a strong uh, emotional attachment, they did need something to make the cycle closed and be on be in peace with the fact that this is something that is not coming back. Yeah, and I think bringing ritual into the lifetime of an electronic object is a really interesting idea and one that potentially has a lot of um yeah, I mean future kind of use, who knows if there if there was a I think the the thing the difference between a, something like a robot dog apart from it being you learn to see it as a dog. Uh, I mean, it looks like a dog. It kind of makes some sounds and imitate a dog. It can also dance, which isn't very dog-like. But you know, <laughs> I think it, the the eyebrow is quite interesting because it's not a furry pet, yeah. so it does have some sort of resemblance of a dog. But I wouldn't say it looks like a dog. It's a plastic object, and it's quite clear it's a robot. It doesn't even have eyes. It has just like this kind of screen mm. type of uh, thing. Um, so it's a it's a it's a strange uh, it is, yeah. relationship you have. Because if you look at the Paro, the other famous robot, the the seal, it, it is more like a fluffy pet. No, it's like a it's a 
it has two eyes and it's really cute and it's a baby seal, um, whereas the Ibo is clearly a robot. You wouldn't mistake it. Yeah, that's true. And we'll we'll come to the power in a second because that's a really interesting example of uh, really beneficial potential uses for robotic pets. But um, with the Ibo, I think what what's interesting is also that it's it is personalized. So the thing with the Ibo, and particularly that now this new model that's being released is that it learns, like, you know, it's it has yeah. AI, it, it learns, and it so it, it kind of will tailor its personality to the person who owns it. And the idea is it, it learns which kind of behaviours will elicit a particular response. And so its personality becomes something that you shape with this robot. And that maybe is what distinguishes it from something like a pair of headphones or a laptop. If it breaks, it's just like every other pair of headphones and every other laptop except it's broken. With the iBo, it's you've kind of created it. So once it fails, you have more of an investment in getting it to work again. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think that's maybe why all these sort of iBo parents in inverted commas were so devastated <laughs> when they found they couldn't repair them anymore. But m- moving on to the Paro. So yeah, I mean, this is a kind of furry much more animal-looking robot. Um, it's interesting that you said that the Ibo doesn't try to look like an animal because this one definitely does a lot more. And I read something by the inventor who said that he chose the seal because people don't have a memory of a seal already that it would be competing with. So with something like a robotic dog, you'd be constantly comparing that to your your memories of dogs. And with the seal, I mean, I don't know that many people have had close first-hand experience with, with a, a baby seal, with yeah. a baby harp seal. Um, but then it raises this interesting question of is of the ethics of deceit. I mean, is it ethical to kind of try and trick people into thinking that a robot is a creature, especially? I don't think they're really tricking people into yeah. that. I mean, it's very clear that it is a robot for the users. Um, but it is uh, interesting the type of relationship that you end up having with them, and it's something that you will have to wonder uh, about and uh, and ask those questions. Um, remember, there was an article by uh, I can't remember the name now, uh, MIT professor uh, researcher that she was saying that uh, the sociologist in the room was the only one that was against. The, the use of the of the robotic pets yeah. in a in a nursery home when they did an experiment because the nurses were super happy with it the patients were thrilled about having it and the sociology was the only one that was seeing that there was something wrong yeah um, with that that with that scenario yeah yeah so to explain that a bit further this paro is not it's not like Sony Ibo just a toy it's actually it's described as a therapeutic robot. Um, it's about $6,000, so not the kind of thing that you would... It's currently being used for sort of, t- yeah, testing and, and um, research. Um, but the idea is that it will be used for uh, people in nursing homes, vulnerable people, as a sort of companion. So just for comfort, essentially. Um, and Carolina, you were saying that with regards to your own mother, something like that might not be such a bad idea. Or yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking more of the Ibo than than oh, I see. than yeah. the Paro uh, on that because my mother-in-law, she's eighty-three years old. She lives by herself in um, in Yokohama, but not too close to a train station or she or to anything really. I mean, she's full of it's uh, it's a suburban neighborhood, so it's full of 
houses and families, but all of her social network has kind of moved on. They either had died or they moved to homes. So all the neighbors that she had from all her life are no longer there and their houses are being uh, taken down and new houses are being built. Uh, so for us, it's a concern to know how she is because she doesn't have a relationship with anyone that can check on her on a periodic basis. Um, so something like the Aibo would be great uh, for us. I'm not sure if for her. I mean, in a way for her too, like because she will have this companion. But for us, uh, as relatives that live quite far from her, at least if you can check if the Aibo is active, you know uh, that she's okay. And yeah, that, and and that and that something is fine. Um, you could also call her, of course, but it's it's a bit more difficult sometimes to just find the right time to call and with the time difference and whatever. Um, but yeah, of course, it brings all sorts of questions about privacy and surveillance and yeah. data and yeah. And on that note, we went to I mean, we went to an exhibition a couple of days ago um, called the Glass Room, which is on until today, I think, or on until the 11th of November. So check it out if you haven't already. It's really fascinating. And it's about data and privacy. And there was an ad for this real product called Silver Mother, which is basically like a series of um, little sensors you can place around the home of of, um, of a parent, an aging parent, to mo- monitor how much they're drinking and how much they're sleeping and whether they're leaving the house. And, yeah, it kind of poses these interesting questions about how much sort of you know, surveillance is is desirable for someone who just wants to take care of the, a parent, especially if they live far, far away. away. Um, and how much, yeah, that's sort of, I don't know, problematic. But uh, that's, I guess, a topic for a, another show. <laughs> but um, going back to the Sony Ibo briefly, uh, another question that's coming up here is, well, if it does use artificial intelligence and it does learn, then what might we expect from the way robotic pets are developing in the future? And uh, what would happen if, say, something similar to what happened with the um, uh, the Microsoft bot Tay happened with someone's pet cat? You know, if it started mm-hmm. downloading all these sort of really kind of horrible ideas from Twitter or whatever sphere it was operating in. I mean, do you think that's something we need to worry about with regards to the rise of robotic pets or... Yeah, I suppose. I mean, anything that you bring into your home that has access to the network, like to, to the World Wide Web, you have to be worried about. It's uh, your smartphone you have to be worried about because yeah. you are just inviting even more potential hackers to get into. So, yeah, anything can be done with those devices. Mm. And the breach, the security breaches are enormous. Mm. And then a last uh, sort of note on the IBO is that the, the most recent design, uh, and this is from an article by Cory Doctor, the most recent design actually requires that pe- buyers have to also buy a monthly subscription. So on top of the price you pay for the actual product, I think you have to pay £16 a month to to be subscribing to the software. And that, again, raises the problem of, I mean, do you ever really own this no, I mean that's the that's the business model that seems to be going on for technology companies. You never own any device anymore, or music for the matter if you buy music on iTunes. Um, so yeah, it does raises all those questions. Um, it 
It is the subscription model now, and it's mm. the economic model for this company. So I'm not sure what we can do about it, but it certainly would be a good thing that as consumers we raise our arms and fight for our right to repair it yeah. and own these things. Because as as soon as you open them, then you're breaking the you're breaching the contract with this uh, uh, manufacturers, which is the problem really. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, in the case of robotic pets, it's sort of like the next step, which is that this is then applied to something that you have an emotional attachment to. I mean, can you imagine if someone had the capability to just shut down the software of your daughter? You'd be quite sort of disturbed. <laughs> yeah, idea. yeah, no, it would be horrible. Yeah. Um, so we're out of time to, to, for today. Thank you very much, Carolina. Thank you for having me, Lauren. And... Um, Follow us on all the social media channels if you haven't already. We're on Facebook and Twitter. And we've got a few events coming up uh, this weekend. So on the 11th of November, there's a restart party in Leicester, the Leicester Hackspace. We've also got one in Cambridge, um, in Bexley, and uh, then in Nottingham on the 15th. And check our website to see the full list. There's plenty on there. Um, Until next week, thank you very much. (laughs) 